John 6, we're going to be 41 through 47 today. So we're continuing, this is uh, this conversation of the group finding Jesus on the other side of the lake after the feeding of the 5,000, and so this, this talk is continuing. So John 6, 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. And truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. All right, we are continuing in this conversation that Jesus has. It's really significant, and we will see today, each week it is becoming a little more sharper in regard to Christ um, communicating with them, kind of where they are. Next week, it just really, boy, just really, really difficult. So next week, this is where he's like, okay, you got problems with this. Well, let me just lay this before you. I'm asking you to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Now, again, we know he's not talking about cannibalism. He's talking about you've got to take me in if you're going to have eternal life. But because they're just thinking on a physical level they don't make the the jump that what he's talking about is that he's got to become their life and they're rejecting that and so so as we as we look at this today uh, we are moving into this really deeper uh, more sharper conversation that Jesus has with them now what we what I want to start off and say this morning is this one of the things we definitely know about Christ is that he was not into an easy believism he kind of set things before people and said, look, this is the way it is. This is what it, it requires. And so all through John's gospel, we are seeing that the religious leaders were very self-righteous and they were having a big issue with the things that Jesus was proclaiming. And they were the ones who were rejecting. And the reason was is they didn't see a need to believe in anything that Jesus had to say. They felt that they had earned enough, they had done enough, and so they were not interested. But now the crowds, we will see, are beginning to turn. They're becoming more skeptical of the things that Jesus is teaching. And so he's going to make one more really big plea this morning in grace. Going to call them one more time, believe in me. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. You've got to believe and you've got to trust in me. And uh, before he kind of makes things... Uh, be much more clear in regard to um, what's there and he's always he's always done this let me let me remind us of something so in the gospel of of luke chapter 18 a young man comes to jesus Uh, we call him the rich young ruler and he comes and he's very wealthy he's very connected he's got lots of stuff and he and he's been very moral in his life and so he you know jesus has a conversation with him and says okay well have you you know, these commandments, he's like, boy, I've kind of got, I've got those down. I've done really well with those. And so, and so Jesus said, well, um, there's one thing that you lack. Um, go and sell everything that you own and then come back and find me and follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. And the text says that when he heard these things, 
he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now, Jesus could have made this much easier on him. Just patted him on the back. Hey, you're okay. God loves you. Do whatever you want to. But he knew that deep down inside the young man that he would not come to follow Jesus and trust Jesus unless he dealt with the big obstacle that was there. And that was his treasure was not a treasure in heaven. It was a treasure on the earth. There was another encounter that Jesus had with the crowds one day. And it's a very familiar text that that we we hear a lot and we kind of quote a lot. So he he called the crowd in Mark 8, 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life is going to lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels, will save it. And so Jesus here is calling the crowd to say, listen, you've got to deny yourself and and follow me and take up a cross. And this is just crazy because all over Israel, everybody would have known. They would have passed by crosses. And they know that crosses are execution things that the Romans use to keep the people oppressed and to keep people in line. And so Jesus comes along and says, listen, if you want to follow me, it's not going to be about you, but you're going to get life, but you've got to deny yourself. And as you deny yourself and you come into a relationship with me, you will, you, if you're going to try and save your life, you're going to lose it. That is, if you're going to try and everything that you do in your works, you're going to end up, but if you will deny yourself and take up your cross and you will come and follow me and you will lose your life, you'll lay your life down for for my sake and for the gospel's sake, here's what you'll find. You'll find the essence of life will be yours. And everybody in the world today, by the way, is looking for the essence of life. And that's why Jesus in John chapter 6 here says, I am the bread who came down from heaven. This this bread of life and he says i am the bread of life this word life here is not biological life in the greek it's zoe and it means essence of life real genuine life and so jesus says i am the bread of life that gives you um, eternal life the essence of life not just an ability to breathe i am offering this to you so those are two examples and the third example is this one that we're walking through right here The crowds are like, we want a baker Messiah. You know, good bread, good butter, good stuff with our food. We just, we want a Messiah that just gives bread. You know, like you did yesterday, Jesus. That was so awesome. When we were on the hillside and you multiplied the fish, you multiplied the bread, and we all ate and we were completely full. And now we've come to find you on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And here we are and... And can you do some of that again? And Jesus is like, no, I'm not doing that again. But I've got something better than yesterday. I've got myself. And I'm the bread that you're really looking for and that will truly satisfy you. And he was not what they were expecting, and so they were not ready, and they became, we'll see today, much more skeptical of Jesus. So let's walk through this that we just read a while ago. Um, because it's, it's tender, it's also challenging um, for us. And so let's look at 41 through 43 again. And I want to talk about, first of all, the danger of seeing Jesus as just a common man, just a commoner, just a carpenter. 
So Jesus has been telling them, I'm the bread of life. I've come down from heaven. So in verse 41, it says, so the Jews grumbled. Let me just stop there for a moment. Can I tell you something? Don't grumble to God. God takes that very serious. Our complaining to him about fix this, do this, and telling him things. We'll talk a little bit more about that here in a moment. But he's been saying these things. I don't like what he's saying. And again, they're really not going to like what he's saying next week. But he's been telling them, and they're fighting, and they're becoming more skeptical. And now they turn to one another, and, and they're like, okay, wait, something's not right about this. And they're grumbling and complaining together over the words of Christ. So it says they grumbled about him. Because he said, this is the reason they're grumbling, he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Here's their issue. Jesus is saying, I've been living up in heaven. And now I've come down to the earth. And they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We know your mom and dad. We know you grew up in Nazareth. We know that you were a carpenter. How can you say that you were in heaven and you've come down here to give Zoe the essence of life to the people here? I'm like, wait a minute. So look at it. Look, let's look. So they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus again said to them, they were grumbling. He says to them, he says, do not grumble among yourselves. Now I'm going to spend a little bit of time here before we move on to the other points. And I want to set this forth this morning. They're grumbling because they look at Jesus and they're thinking, okay, we know you. A prophet is not welcome in their hometown, Jesus said. They are so familiar. Um, we know this from other, other I, I know this from other people and people have talked about this. You know, um, people who become famous athletes or something, they go back to their hometown and they just, they just re- the people in the hometown remember when they were a seventh grader and how what a brat they were, and, and they're kind of, kind of, kind of can't rise above that. And so here the people are like, okay, we know you. And so, so the prophets had written the Messiah was going to come in the midst of the people, and now he was in the midst of the people. But the problem was they were not ready for the kind of Messiah that Jesus was going to be. What did they want? They wanted a military top Messiah that would overcome Rome and free them from their oppression. This group of people wants a baker Jesus. We want you to make bread for us, multiply fish for us. This is what we want you to do for us. And what they weren't ready for, which I think is one of the beautiful things about Jesus, is they were not ready for his humility. And his humility is so fascinating. Watch this. The eternal Son of God, equal with the Father, equal with the Spirit, never had a beginning. He will never have an end. He upholds the world. By the word of his power, for 30 years, grew up in Nazareth, or not that whole time, but 20-something years, grew up in Nazareth, and just worked in a carpenter shop. He didn't go around saying, I'm God, who's come down, and you're going to have to believe in me, and I'm going to have this future ministry, it's coming. He just, in humility, worked and built tables and built chairs and built furniture, and just in his great humility, lived that way until the Father said, okay, now is the time and so so here he is he's grown up they know him they think okay that's carpenter guy woodworking guy and now he's telling us that he's come down from heaven and he's 
the Zoe man. He's going to give the essence of life. That he's the one that we have to believe in. And they begin to complain. Now watch this. Thousands of years earlier, guess what their forefathers did? Does anybody have an idea what their forefathers did? They complained and murmured. Oh God, God, what's your problem? Can we go back to Egypt, Moses? You know, brick making was better than how do we get water? How do we get food? How do we get meat? How do we, how do, we do this? And they're, and they're complaining and nothing has changed. Listen to these, listen to these two things. This is Exodus fifteen twenty four, And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Here's Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. If you want to kind of have a little bit of fear about grumbling and complaining to God, I've never seen this in my life. He did do it back then. But listen to this. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among the people and consumed part of the outlaying ground of the camp. Just burned it up. So if you don't think God takes grumbling from his people serious, he does take it really serious. And so here is the Messiah standing in the presence of these people. They want bread. He's not going to give them bread. Now he's saying, I'm the bread that's come down out of heaven. I'm the Zoe giver. And, and, and they're like... Are you kidding me? We know you. We know where you grew up. We know what middle school you went to. We know what clubs you were in. We know all of this stuff. You're Joseph's son. You're Mary's son. You're the carpenter. And they're just beginning, right before our very eyes, becoming skeptical of everything that Jesus is communicating about himself. And they're like, we'd like another Moses. Moses for 40 years. Helped us get bread for 40 years. You gave us bread yesterday. you got a long way to go, carpenter man, to give us bread. Moses, for 40 years, allowed us to do this. But by the way, was it Moses that gave them the bread? No, it wasn't. It was the Father who gave them the bread. But they've got a real problem here. Right before them is one who's claiming that he's greater than Moses, but they just seem to know him only as the son of Joseph, and they know his mother to them, he's just a carpenter's son. He is not the son of God. And so they, declaim, they complain, they grumble amongst themselves about what he's saying. What in the world, they say, is he doing claiming to be the bread that comes down from heaven? Which, by the way, in John chapter 6, he affirms this six times. Six times he says, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. But they just seem as a common man, just somebody just like them, just one of several sons that Joseph and Mary had, fully confident that they can put themselves in the place that they can challenge him in regard to all of his claims. Now, this is an important thing to see here because I think in, in, if we were to bring it to our own lives, of, of, is, is there any way that we are like them sometimes? And yeah, we can be like them sometimes. If you, how many have grown up in church your whole life? Just raise, raise your hand. You've grown up in church. You've heard the stories, have you not? I mean, how many times have you read Feeding of the 5,000 story in your lifetime? We've heard it. You know what our approach could be sometimes? Yeah, I know that story. There's nothing new to learn. 
But if we approach it, so we can approach it arrogantly, or we can approach it of reading it and realizing, I've heard the story so many times, and, and we've all experienced that. You can read something that you've read a hundred times in the Scripture, and you read it the hundred and first time, and what do you see? You see something you've never seen before. Maybe it's just a word, or maybe it's a phrase, or whatever the case may be. And so, so there was an arrogance to these people. Sometimes there can be an arrogance with us that we have to be careful of. And so now they feel like they can get into a place to grumble about Jesus, complain about Jesus, and charge Jesus by saying, you are just a common person. You have no right to say that you've come down from heaven to be able to give life to everyone. And so Jesus stops them as they're, watch, they're grumbling amongst themselves He knows what they're grumbling about, and he's like, okay, I'm going to speak into that. And he says this, don't grumble among yourselves. And he's calling them because here's what happens. When you complain, what do you focus on? The problem. Not a solution, not the answer, not the hope. He is their hope, and as they're complaining about his statements, the hope of their lives is contained in the statements that he's making But the hope of their lives is standing. They are standing in the eternal presence of God in a body right there by the lake. And they're about to miss it. And so he's like, don't do this. And what you and I see in the text here is the highest of praise. They saw as the highest reason to complain and to gripe about what he's doing. And the arrogance here is just amazing. For often grumblers think that they know better than Jesus and they set themselves into a place of telling him how he should do things differently if we have learned anything in the last seven months have we not learned that we are in control of nothing we all want to go back to we've talked about it we all want to go back to first of March can we go back to first of March can we go back to the end of February and we just can we get back to our lives and and we're not there yet but but listen church listen Our great hope is not the March 1, 2020. Our great hope is on this day, 2020, that the sovereign Son of God is still in charge of the world. And He's present in this room today. And He's calling us to Zoe, the essence of life that is found in Him, that He is the hope of all things. And so here, here, these people are becoming skeptics right before our very eyes. They are wanting Jesus to be the bread man. And, and Jesus is saying, listen, no, I, want, I, I am bread, but I am more than just bread. I am the essence of life. And so you need to believe in me. And they become skeptics. And if you've ever dealt with a skeptic, you ever had a conversation with a skeptic, you may say to a skeptic at some point in time, if I give you solid answers to your to your confusion and the things that, that, are, that you say are keeping you from believing, if I can give you some solid answers, will you believe? You know what just about everybody says? Well, I actually have more issues than just that issue. And, and so what you find out is, is that the issue is really not the issue. You know what the issue is? People don't want to bow before the glory of Jesus. Because to do that, you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross. You have to follow Him daily. But when you do that, do we not know? I hope I hear some amens. Have we not learned that when you deny yourself, you find life that is connected to him? And so he, again, I I got to go to the dump again. My illustration last week, I got to go, my boys have moved and I've got to throw two nasty couches 
that 20-something-year-old boys had in their apartment. And I could throw another one away, and I just, again, watched car after car after car on Friday morning bringing stuff that at one point in time were vital aspects of people's lives and just are trash now. Nothing here lasts. That's why Jesus is telling these people, y'all have come today looking for bread because yesterday's bread doesn't last. But I'm here offering something that's going to last all the way to eternity and I will raise you up if you believe in me. I will raise you up on the last day and you will be with me and my Father for all of eternity. And the reality is simply this. They had already seen a miracle the day before. They have enough evidence. They don't lack evidence. And that's usually the case with skeptics. They don't lack evidence. They just don't want to bow. And at the root of unbelief, again, it's not a lack of evidence, but it's an attitude that wants to tell God how he ought to do things. And then the Apostle Paul comes along. (laughs) Apostle Paul, I tell you, let him work your life over often. He's in a Roman cell writing to a church he started in Philippi, probably chained to a centurion, and he writes, don't grumble or complain. That's what he writes to the church as he's in prison. Because if you don't, as a believer, grumble and complain, you will shine like the stars of the universe because you know what dominates a lost culture? Grumbling and complaining. Listen to talk radio this afternoon. Listen to it tomorrow. Listen to, listen to the news. It's grumbling and complaining about everything. And so, so Paul says, listen, don't do all things without grumbling or complaining. And here's why. We will never give thanks for what God has done in our lives if, when we're complaining. And so Paul also wrote, give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So there's no way that we can live thankful when we complain. And so so here are these people complaining as they stand in the presence of Jesus. And they're like, carpenter man, you have no right to tell us that you've come down from heaven to give the essence of life. And before we move on to point two, church, I want to say this morning very definitively, He, Jesus, is not common. He is magnificent. He is... I don't have enough English words today, and I can speak some German. I don't have enough German words to talk about the majesty of King Jesus. There's not enough Greek expressive words that do him justice. He is not common. He opened blind eyes. People that were dead, dead, no heartbeat, no brain activity came to life. People who had leprosy, their skin was renewed. A man's hand who was like this all of a sudden just shriveled, just did this. And he could use it. He is the point of scripture. He is the centerpiece of civilization. He is not a carpenter. 
He is the eternal Son of God. And the Old Testament writers and the New Testament writers could not stop writing about that He's more than ordinary and He is not common. Let me just give you a few. In Exodus, He is the Passover lamb who was slain. In Numbers, He is the cloud by day and the fire by night. In Ruth, He is the kinsman redeemer. In Nehemiah, He is the rebuilder of the broken walls. In Psalms, He is the good shepherd. In Isaiah, He is the prince of peace and He is the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, He is the rejected messenger of the Lord. In Daniel, he's the fourth man in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In Hosea, he is the faithful bridegroom married to an unfaithful wife. In Jonah, he's the merciful and forgiving God. In Zechariah, he is the merciful father. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness, rising with healing in his wings. And then he comes and he reveals himself and people get to know him and he reveals the Father. And under the inspiration of the Spirit, those that knew him began to write about him. And so Matthew writes that he's the Savior King. Mark writes that he's the, he's the Savior Servant. Luke writes he's the Son of Man. And John writes he's the Son of God. In Acts, he's the risen Lord. In Romans, he's the justifier of sinners. In First and Second Corinthians, he's the giver of gifts and, and giver of his life. In Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. In Ephesians, he is the unsearchable riches of God. In Philemon, he is the friend who sticks closer than a brother. In First, Second, and Third John, he is the he is the picture, perfect picture of everlasting love for people and in Jude he is the Lord who comes down with thousands upon ten thousands of saints and in Revelation he is the Alpha and he is the Omega he is the beginning and he is the end and I just if you don't get it he's more than a carpenter he's not common there's never been anybody like him and when John sees him in heaven on a throne He sees a lamb who has been slain, who's got marks, and we will see those marks one day. He is not common, and that's all the people could see. And I hope that we feel that this morning, we sense that this morning, I hope that awakens our mind to see that he's not that. And then Jesus repeats something. Look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Three times in John chapter 6, in 37a, here in 644, and then in 665. Look at 665. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So, parents, we have these people in our house that look like us, maybe. They act like us, and we're to shape them, and they don't listen sometimes. And so you have, what do you have to do? You tell them again. And you know what they don't do after the second time you tell them? They don't listen the third time. So you tell them again, and then they don't listen, and then hopefully they leave your house one day, and they can just go not listen away from your house, you know? <laughs> So I want you to notice this. Three times in John chapter 6, Jesus repeats the same thing. You think he's trying to tell us something. 
And do you think that we forget something? You think that there needs to be something that we need to hear again. So let me let us hear it again. No one, no one, do we understand no one? That means not anyone. No one, no one comes to me unless the Father draws them to me. No one. Well, I reasoned and reasoned in my life and came to the conclusion that Jesus was the answer. Uh, No, you didn't. Because if we can reason our way into the kingdom, who did the, salva- who did the saving? We did. So Jesus says here, reminding us, this great work of salvation is not in our power or in our control. And so once again, again three times in John chapter 6, he's telling these people, no one comes to me. They, he's telling them, you have an issue, you can't come to me in your own intellect or your own power you can't come unless the, unless the father is drawing you so he tells them no one can come to me unless the father who sent me i've been sent by him to you now covenant people i have come and you aren't interested in what i'm saying to you you're not interested but listen those whom the father draws and those who do come when they come to me i keep them and I will raise them up on the last day I remember I was in eighth grade and I was on South Padre Island and my brother Doug and I were out in the water and all of a sudden a brief riptide came and I was taller at the time and again I was 14 years old and I and, and I, I remember being under the water and grabbing him and lifting him up over the water thinking, okay, I'm going to die, but if I can, if I can save him, I'll, I'll hold him up as best I can and maybe we'll come, somebody can come. And I, that riptide was pulling, pulling us out. And I remember my own salvation experience was a little bit like that, that I was on the shore where I could be in control and things felt certain. And then all of a sudden, one Sunday night, as I shared last week, I went to a testimony service of a retreat that I didn't go to, and I look back on this Sunday, how in the world did I end up in that room that night of being a part of a testimony service of something that I didn't go to, I had no clue about it, and I, and I ended up in that room on a Sunday night in Waco, Texas, because God had been drawing me away from my security into the water, the riptide of eternity pulling me out, And I recognized that night by his revelation that I needed him. I didn't need me. And the saving is when we recognize this has nothing to do with me, and so I'm just going to relax. And I remember as I held my brother up, I relaxed. And and I I don't want to over-spiritualize something. I just know that I was in eighth grade, and I thought I was about to drown, and I was hoping I could save my brother, and all of a sudden... My head was above water. And I want to I say to everybody in the room this morning, I think he wants to riptide us away from what we think of the earth as secure, and he wants to bring us to a place where we're under the water and we just have to relax because we are not in control. 
of our salvation of anything. And Jesus here telling these people, communicating to you and I this morning that no one can come to Him unless the Father draws the person. And when the Father draws the person to Jesus, He keeps the person and He will raise that person up on the last day. If you could reason your way to salvation, you and I do it. If we could buy our way to salvation, then we did it. If we could be good morally enough to earn salvation, then we did it. If we could fight enough for social justice causes and make a difference in the world, then we could say we did it. If we believe that water baptism saves us, well, can I tell you this? Somebody water baptizes you, and so you don't even do the water baptizing. Somebody else does it. If your parents have strong faith, if your grandparents had strong faith, if your great-grandparents had strong faith, and then we say, well, I'm just relying on the faith of my heritage, my family heritage, that's not enough because we're relying on something else. And so here this morning, here it is. Can we, can I take a big sword and just drive it into the carcass of we earn our salvation? And to drive it in to say this, he draws to, Father draws to Jesus. He reveals, do we believe? Absolutely, the scripture says that we believe. But he enables dead people to believe. So even in our salvation, we point to the glory of his name. Never to us. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be glory forever. So we are drawn, we are saved, and then we are raised. One day we will be raised. Let's look at the third thing. Jesus calls them back to the scriptures as they stand in his presence. And I want to talk about the scriptures affirm the truth of Jesus. So Luke 45. So it is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Look at 45 again. Let's make sure we hear it. It is written in the prophets. So Jesus says the Old Testament, the prophets wrote, that everybody would be taught by God and everyone of those, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, who is the master teacher, everyone that the Father teaches, they come to me who have learned from him. And so Jesus says two things here, very unique. He says this, the Old Testament writers, and Micah wrote about it, Jeremiah wrote about it, and Isaiah wrote twice about it. That the Messiah would come, he would be in the midst of the people, and he would teach the people about God. He would teach them about himself. And so, so Jesus says here, it is written, let me remind you here today, that the prophets wrote that God would come and be in the midst of the people, and he would teach the people. And the Father would be this great teacher revealing the glory of who Jesus is. And so it says it again. Look at 45 again. So make sure we get it. It's beautiful. It is written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. So the Father is teaching. And everyone who hears, who has heard and learned from the Father, 
What do they do? They come to Jesus. So the Father is this master teacher in the world, teaching about the glory of Jesus, proclaiming about the glory of Jesus. The Holy Spirit, by the way, does this as well. We learn this in John when we get there eventually. You know, we're, uh, we're 13 months into studying John. We're at chapter 6. We've got about two more years to go, I think, and we'll be through with John's gospel. So the Spirit does this work. The Father does this work of drawing people to Jesus. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Micah teach us that God would come and He would teach the people. Let me just read you some of Micah, what he wrote. Micah 4, verse 1, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Listen, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. There's a great change. This is, this is a prophetic word about a kingdom that's coming called the millennial kingdom, this great renewal, this great peace that's going to come. It's not going to be swords. People are going to be farmers. You ever wanted to be a farmer? Maybe you'll be a farmer in the millennial kingdom. And their spears will be turned into pruning hooks. And listen what happens. And nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Wouldn't that be good? And neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one. Listen to these words. This is a coming kingdom, but can also be known now. Listen to this. And they will sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. No COVID-19, no shutdown, no fear of this, no fear of that. No one shall make them be afraid. And you know why it's going to come accomplished? For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. It's settled. It's finished. So Jesus is telling the people, I'm here in your midst, and I'm telling you that I offer Zoe. You're looking for it. I offer the bread of life. I am the bread of life. You've got to come to me. And again, he says here that everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Do you remember they were in, near Capernaum? And Jesus said to the disciples, hey, what's everybody saying about who I am? Well, some say you're this, some say you're that. Well, what about you? What, what do you guys say about who I am? And Peter loved to talk. And he said, you are the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus answered Peter and said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Barjona, for flesh and blood, not your Jewish heritage, not your being a disciple. You didn't osmosis just arrive. But my Father just revealed to you who I am. And again, the Father 
This reminder, Jesus is saying, the Scriptures affirm this. The Father draws. We don't get the credit. So the hearing and learning. Why do, why, why do we do this every Sunday morning? Why are we doing this next week? Why are we doing this 15 years from now? Well, we're going to have our chairs back together because we're going to be done with COVID life. We're going to be shoulder to shoulder. Which, by the way, is going to come in this room in the near future. So just be ready for it. We will help prepare you, but it's coming, okay? It's coming. We're going to sit next to each other. I'm going to sit next to John Llewellyn, shoulder to shoulder. Listen. Why do we do this? It's not because I need to manipulate you. I need to motivate you. But I need to, as best I can, proclaim this. Because this is what he uses to draw people to the Son. And so I... I consider my role here with a heavy duty responsibility every Sunday morning to when I'm up here to proclaim this but I also can to know that it's it's not dependent upon me it's it's dependent on my trust but it's dependent upon his work and so the best thing that I can do is not to do a bunch of dope stuff the best thing I can do is just tell you about a father a son and a spirit who are worthy of our worship. And so here's what a church should do. A church should teach the written word as written. It should be word-centered. Secondly, it should teach with Christ at the center, never man in any kind of way. Here's the third thing a church should do. It should structure its ministries. This is taking place on this campus. So back here, over there, We do this on Wednesday nights. Our life groups will be doing it today and this week. A church structures the ministry of the church to be hearing the word ministries. To sit under the authority of the word and to be reminded that the word is important. And the fourth key thing that a church must do is it relies on the Father, it relies on the Son, it relies on the Spirit's work. It never relies on man's manipulation or Christian motivation. We have had enough of Christian motivation. We've had enough of it. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Well, just a couple more things. Y'all all right? Can I go another hour? Because I could, but I won't. But, okay, I won't. But this one is critical. Jesus tells the people he's the only one who can reveal to them who the Father is. So look at 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Let's let's read it again. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Here's what Jesus is affirming. It's really clear. Who is the only one who has seen the Father? Okay, it starts with a J. Who's the only one who's ever seen the Father? Jesus. Okay, Jesus. 
So who's the only one who can be the best explanation of who the Father is? Well, Jesus is. That's, okay, the answer is Jesus, all right? You got that, Javon? It's Jesus. That J word, not Javon. So in John chapter 1, verse 18, John writes this about Jesus. He uses a Greek word that we use today, and it's what I'm doing this morning. It's what we do every week. It's called exegete. It's, every, it's word for word, phrase by phrase, sentence by sentence, verse by verse. And it's, it's this idea of giving explanation to the revelation. And so when John writes in John 1 verse 18 that Jesus has made known the Father, he's made known God. In the Greek, it's this word exegete, and it means to explain something. And so Jesus becomes the exposition, the explanation of what the Father's heart is like. And so when Jesus came here, guess what Jesus did? He explained who God was in his body, in his words, in his works, and the things that he did. He was the one who is the explanation of who God is. So when Christ was here incarnate in a body, in his humanity, he, dis- he defines God for us. He displays the glory of God to us in the scriptures. And then he distributes God's grace in every moment, grace upon grace, grace upon grace, regardless of our circumstances. And so when you see Jesus standing outside of the tomb of Lazarus, and Lazarus' sisters are weeping, and it says, He wept. You're seeing God cry. When you see Him tell a man to pick up his mat and walk, that's God doing that. When He's walking through a crowd and people are clamoring to touch Him, and there's a woman who's been bleeding for years, and she reaches out and just, just barely touches the hem of His robe, and, and her bleeding immediately stops, and he stops and says, Who touched me? And the disciples are like, Are you kidding me? Do you see these hundreds of people wanting to touch you? And you want to know who touched you? Well, there's about four or five hundred of them here who touched you. And he's like, No, 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 no. And there's a woman there. And he sees her. When you see that moment, that's God. That's God walking on the ground. On this earth. In the midst of people. And so here's what I want to say. Get to know Jesus. He's the only one who can explain who God is. And if you are into movies and books that, I hope you're not, that talk about people dying and going to heaven and seeing God, false. That contradicts this text. Jesus is the only one who has seen the Father and made Him known. One day, we will, but that is not happening now. And that movie might make you feel good, but that's bad doctrine. It's false theology, and it's not right, and it's not true. It contradicts this. We don't need a 12-year-old dying and going to heaven explaining who God is when the Son of God came here to explain who He is. Are you all with me? So we don't need that. You got one of those books at home? I think it's going to be cold this week. Get your fire pit out. Torch it. Get to know 
Jesus, the one who explains the Father, know Him more than Spurgeon, know Him more than Piper, know Him more than Luther, know Him more than Calvin, know Him more than Jonathan Edwards, know Him more than Bonhoeffer, know Him more than John MacArthur, know Him more than Doak Taylor, know Jesus. He is the only one who can explain who the Father is. And i got one brief fifth thing, and then I'm going to close this down with an illustration. He's the only hope for eternal life. So 47, he offers it to him one more time. People are like, oh, you're just a commoner. You're just a commoner. You're just a carpenter. How can you say that you're the bread who's come down from heaven to offer Zoe to the world? And so he says, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes has eternal life. All right, I'm done with that. So last night I'm sitting at the table in my kitchen drinking some lovely Scott Doused Nespresso from my Nespresso maker. And I'm like, how, God, I'm like, God, how do we close this out tomorrow? How do we close this out? And I've never heard an audible voice of God. And I look back at point four, that he's the one who reveals. And I thought, well, what did Jesus say about the Father? So let me just give you a few things that Jesus said about the Father. When he was teaching about prayer, he said, if a son comes to a father and says, Father, can I have a fish or bread? What father gives that son stone or a serpent? No, and if you're father who gives good gifts if, if if a bad father or even a good father won't do something like that how much more will your heavenly father give to those who love him so jesus tells us that the father's not going to give us a stone jesus also teaches us that the father has these eyes that look in secret so when we pray in secret when we give in secret when we fast in secret he sees what we're doing and he rewards those who do things in secret Jesus teaches us that the Father's name is hallowed. Luke 11, 1, they're watching Jesus pray, and he says, amen. They're like, can you teach us how to pray like that? And he said, okay, let me give you a framework. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed, holy be your name. So Jesus tells us that the Father's name is hallowed, is to be revered. He's a forgiving Father. If you will forgive others their sins, your Father in heaven will forgive your sins. Jesus teaches us about the Father that this morning when I got up really early and those birds in the backyard were just dark and they're just happy and singing and they've been fed and they're happy looking forward to a new day today. He feeds them and the fields are clothed with lilies, that the Father takes care of the birds, and He takes care of the fields with flowers. And then Jesus said, if your Father does that, how much more value are you compared to them because you are made in His image? And then in Matthew 16, He reveals truth to us. And of all the stories I could tell as we finish this morning, that Jesus gave to us to highlight the glory of the Father. It's this one. 
there was a man who had two sons, and one son, the younger one, came to the father one day and said, Father, I wish you were dead, because when you die, I can get my inheritance, but can I have my inheritance now? And the father knows that you can't force love, and so he gives the younger boy his inheritance, and he hangs around for a few days, and the boy takes off. With all the hard-earned money that the father had given and, ha- and worked for all of his life, and he gives it to the son, and the son goes away to a distant country. And when you got a lot of money and you're willing to spend it, you can get fast friends. And I'm sure he had fast friends in the distant country. But then a famine came into the land. And by the way, let me just tell you this, that anytime you want to run away from God, you end up in a famine. So the boy's in the distant country. He has no friends now. They're gone. They can't help. A famine has entered, and so he hires himself to feed pigs with pods. For a Jewish boy, this should not happen. Pigs are dirty, and they're awful. And that's throwing this slop out there for the pigs to eat, and the pigs are oinking and eating. The fog clears away from his mind, and he remembers the father's house. And this is what he remembered. Boy, it was good back there. And I've run away from that. Here's what I'm going to do. Let me think this through. I've done such evil and mocked my father's name so much that I've kind of unborn myself. And I'll just go back and I'll be a servant. So I'll go back and plead with my father, Father, can I live in the servants' quarters? So if he has stuff, he gets it and he begins to go back. And I'm reading this at my table last night and and I, I can never get over this phrase in Luke 15. So he's coming back home. And Jesus just utters these words. And the father saw him from a long way off. That was me. That was me one day. You see, the father has these eyes that he sees us before we even know that we're near. He sees him. He he sees the son coming. And then the most amazing thing happens. The father doesn't do this. Taps his feet. He doesn't shout, told you, told you it wasn't going to work out. Can I tell you what Jesus reveals about this father? He sees us first from way off. It says he feels compassion for the son. And this compassion moves him. And this father runs. Runs to one who's mocked his name. Used all of his gifts to not honor his father. The father gets to the son. He embraces the son. And the son, who's memorized a speech, I've been unborn, I'm not worthy anymore, So he begins to say to the Father, Father, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He's giving the speech, and the Father's kissing his head. He's kissing his head. Communicating to the Son, your church, I love you. Listen to me. 
Our fancy little things don't move the heart of God like we think our little speeches do. This is His world. Does He move with our prayers? Absolutely, He does. But the Son's given the speech that's not biblical, it's not right, He's not been unborn. All the Father's saying is, no, you're not unborn, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. So He's the Father who gives the kiss of heaven, and He's the Father of restoration. The Son's just got ratted clothes. Go get some shoes. Go get the family ring. Get a robe and put it on my son. And then lastly, Jesus tells us this, that he's the father of celebration. Hey, boys, you know that calf? We've been fattening up and we're like, you know, we've kind of been teasing it how fat it is. Go get it. Cut its throat. Get the butchers, let's, 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 let's get that skin off and let's put it on the fire. Because my son, who was dead, is alive again. He was lost and he's found. And I tell you, the beautiful thing about Jesus is this. is He tells us this about the Father. The very end of his life, he's just broken from the night before. He's just been, his body is just tattered, ripped open. Darkness covers the land. In his last moment, this is what he knows about the goodness of the Father. Is that he says, Father, I'm about to die now. And so I know you're good, and so I'm trusting my spirit with you. And in his last words, he says, into your hands, I commit my spirit. So standing in the city by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus tells the people, let me tell you that I'm the explanation of who God is. I'm the explanation. Just look at me. And whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, has, not hopes, has eternal life. Zoe. Essence of life that lasts forever. He's the explanation of God for us. Let's pray.